Hello and welcome to The Stack, a trio of exciting magazines today. Germany's oldest design magazine releases its first all-English issue. The mother tongue thing returns to the show and a new magazine about skiing. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in Germany. The country's oldest and respected design magazine, Form, launched their first all-English issue, a compilation of 35 pieces from the magazine's archive in the last three and a half years. It is a hefty celebration of the iconic title. I spoke with the co-editors-in-chief of Form, Anton Rouse and Nina Sieverding. The first edition or first issues of Form were published in German, English, French. So really, really old designers, maybe even know the bilingual or trilingual issues of Form. Form is one of the oldest design magazines in Germany. They always had a really integrated approach and looked at all the facets of design, even in the 50s. And that's what we still find so interesting today. And among the founders are some that you may uh, still recognize today, like um, Wilhelm Wagenfeld, made the Bauhaus lamp that he designed. Or oh, Wilhelm Sandberg, who was a curator and uh, the master's uh, studies in Amsterdam are named after him, for example, the Sandberg Institute. Tell us the decision to do, uh, you know, a version in English. I mean, as you said, perhaps in the beginning, they were actually in English and, and French as well. Did you want to perhaps to spread the message across to a different public, perhaps? Yeah, definitely. Actually, when we took over the, the magazine or became the editors-in-chief of Form, the magazine was bilingual, English and German, and we got rid of the English half because it was super complicated to bring it together in one magazine it was also very expensive and it was hard to like focus on a target audience as well but during or in the end period of corona we went to the summer school domain de Boisboucher, the design summer school in france and it was a pity that everyone knew form but we couldn't really talk about the content and articles and stuff we published there but so we thought, okay, we somehow have to bring back the English. And this was kind of the moment when we thought about, okay, let's somehow realize it, maybe in a different form than form. Well, I'm glad you brought it back. Uh, and of course, it's a design title. So Max, I want to ask you, the art director, what's the difference of making the international issue and the, and the traditional German edition? Did you have to change a few things or the spirit remains the same? Let's go through a little bit about the format as well. Yeah, sure. So I think, first of all, it's important to say that like the whole, also the whole art direction, the design is like done in close collaboration between me and Nina and Anton. So it's really like a teamwork effort. We started working on the redesign of the main form uh, magazine in 2020 uh, already. So it was like a really long process. And already then I, I remember we were like also talking about like the super rough idea of an international issue. And then at some, po at some point we decided uh, to actually do it. 
in a way, Forum International is a collection of the last three years of the main magazine. And design-wise, the focus was, because in the main magazine, we, with the design we and the content we do, for every article, we do like a special layout and like try out different directions. And for the international issue, we decided, okay, we need to standardize it a little bit. There's like no hierarchy in a way. So one article is more important than the other. And also time-wise, that we can like work a little bit faster because we did the international issue right after the last issue came out. So that was like, that influenced a lot the design decisions we took. And we also went from a magazine format to like a kind of in-between book format. Max, I have to say the cover is very satisfying as well. You know, you said that every article has the same kind of importance in a way. And I think you can see that in the cover, right? So it's very neat. Yeah, I mean, that, that was also um, because like all the design decisions we take, we take them always together, always reflecting the content. So especially the cover uh, concept was is, is a really good example of that because we said, OK, we turn the content table, we bring it to the outside and it's really like on the spine. You also see we printed the imprint. So that's like really like a concept uh, idea of the of the cover. And Nina, I know you launched the title at Salone in Milano, right? How was the, the reception? I mean, uh, were people excited and now, now they can read some of the best articles of form, but in English as well? Oh, it was wonderful. It was just wonderful because we were so lucky. Um, we were launching at uh, Dopo, which is like a creative space cultural association in, in Milan and we were there at the showroom of Fleur, a Berlin-based furniture label. We did like an evening with, with talks and um, where we had the, like the official release of the international issue and it was just, I don't know, my heart was full the whole time because all of our friends were there, but not just our friends, but people we were interested and we had such lovely conversations that evening. So it was really, really well accepted, I guess. <laughs> and I have a, a out of curiosity, where are you based? Where is like actually form found? Is there is there a city in Germany uh, where, where the magazine share its DNA? Yeah, we're based in Frankfurt and form has a lot of different, has had a lot of different phases, a lot of different editors and chiefs. But Frankfurt always has been pretty important for the magazine. That's one thing actually I like about Germany, that there's so many actually important cities in the country, unlike the UK or France, where basically everything's around London or Paris. I think that's actually very nice. And Anton, if you don't mind perhaps sharing some of the highlights uh, as well. I mean, there, there are plenty. I know, I know, you know, for example, I love that photo story about the history of the fans as well. I mean, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But perhaps mention what can people expect actually in the magazine when it comes to the articles? Uh, it's a diverse range of, of content, I'd say. And, and, and it's not even, oh, we scratched the surface of articles and contents which we featured in the like regular magazine. So we have like, I'd say classical um, studio visits, for example, of the Berlin-based like metal workshop slash design studio Erdland Soul, where like really they were upcoming when we featured them like one and a half years ago, but now they are like really becoming a big thing and always exhibiting in Milan as well, for example. 
I'm also very happy about like two manifestos we have in the magazine. One is a critical feminist design manifesto. It's called Staying with the Trouble. It was very important for us to publish it again in German and in, in English to be yeah, to somehow also manifest uh, it a bit more. We have another manifesto which is dealing with non-human, non-centered design, which we developed or which I developed with, with another designer, artist, in a workshop of the Institute for Post-Natural Studies. We have also like stories, for example, about the history of nail design, which is for me also very interesting because it maybe on the first side does not appear that it's such a designy topic, maybe more like um, social or also maybe even fashion topic. But for us, it shows how interlinked all these topics are. For us, design is not only industrial design, for example. And mm. also like really German articles mm -hmm. that maybe um, are nevertheless interesting for an international audience, like the story of a designer who couldn't work anymore as a designer in the German Democratic Republic. A story that has never been told somewhere else. And you're right, because it's interesting for people outside Germany as well to discover a little bit more about the country. And that's what I was going to ask Max, because every time I go to Germany, I mean, it's incredible the amount of print, I mean, you guys still have. Even even the weekly magazines, you know, the cover, they, they look quite beautiful. So a lot of illustration as well. Were you influenced by that type of design, Max? Because I have to say, I mean, I wish I speak German because uh, there, there's so much content, much more than in many countries. I mean, you go to the US, it's very difficult to find magazines, actually. Uh, I know there are a lot of subscriptions, but in Germany, it's still quite widespread. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think especially in the bigger cities, we have these special uh, magazine shops that sell like magazines and art books. And I think that that culture in the last maybe 20 to 15 years really uh, evolved from like the era where everyone said print is dead and like it proved it's not dead. Uh, I can't really say that we got like what's like the 100% inspiration uh, we got for the Form International issue. I, I guess it's like being surrounded by print publications and looking at them like frequently. And I think also, the, I mean, I think this whole magazine market is quite strong in Germany, but we also look, I don't know, at the, the whatever uh, what happens in Spain, for example, Apartamento magazine, what they are doing in Italy, like with the flash art. Um, there's also going on a lot. So I guess it's like more, I would say, an European style that also influenced what we did with the international issue. Thank you very much, Anton and Nina. And Form International is out now. For more, go to form.de. We move on now to the exciting magazine Mother Tongue. And welcome back to the show. The title's founders and editors, Melissa Goldstein and Natalia Rackling. The magazine known for disrupting the motherhood media landscape just launched its newest issue for spring 2023. Let's hear from Melissa and Natalia. It was a project born of a very strange time. You know, we were very much still in the midst of the pandemic. And I think we came at this with great hope, but zero expectation. And it's really been a delight to see it 
evolve and grow from something that started as, you know, something that we were calling a potential journal. We weren't quite ready to commit to the title of magazine in the early days. And then here we are now, we've just released our fourth issue. And I think the publication has really been changing with the times since then. The first issue was sort of a time capsule for the pandemic era, I think, that we were in the midst of. The second issue was really sort of capturing this prevailing sentiment of anger that mothers felt across the world facing these sort of systemic challenges that the pandemic really underscored. And, you know, I think for each issue, we've sort of been doing this cultural sense check to see where the story is going, sort of where the tide is turning in terms of the storytelling surrounding motherhood. Because I think for us, it's a priority to make sure that we're not just sort of, you know, going in circles, but trying to sustain this conversation and make it enduring. Because I think there was sort of a fever pitch in the motherhood space during the pandemic. There was a lot of mainstream media as well turned their attention to motherhood. And I think for us now, it's about creating this long-term platform to be a host for these stories. And Melissa, one thing, perhaps I love the editor's letter, because you say that this issue is about dangerous women. I love that. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Well, I think that the idea of dangerous women, like in a way, you know, the way that we perceive it is kind of this notion that like women who question things are dangerous they're dangerous mm. to the status quo and the magazine is really about questioning everything you know even in this issue we had a great conversation between Dr. Pooja Lakshman and Ruby Warrington about having kids whether or not to have kids and the decision that some women make not to and what culture says about that and I think maybe that's an unexpected conversation to have in this magazine that you know, some might say is for mothers, but we've always kind of wanted to make a magazine that is inclusive of everyone. And the conversation is about motherhood, which means that it can include everybody because everyone has a stake in it. So I think, yeah, this idea of dangerous is kind of poking holes in these cultural myths that we've all been steeped in. And it's interesting as well that I think since we last spoke, for example, I know in the United States, the country is so politicized and women's rights as well. I mean, there's been so many regressive laws. And I think it's important to have a magazine like this to discuss those issues as well, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, we are quite openly political as a mm. publication and motherhood itself has become extraordinarily political. And like you say, particularly in America, with everything that's going on now, sort of post-overturn of Roe versus Wade, you know, we have daily headlines about women's issues being <laughs> rolled back in time. And I think that's an absolute priority for us is to engage in these conversations in a really nuanced and diverse way and think about, you know, what the future of motherhood and womanhood looks like in this country. Absolutely. And Again, you know, I'll give you my take. One of the reasons I think why the magazine did so well, I love, for example, when you look at the ads of the magazine, they are related to the magazine. You know, I think this shows kind of a strong DNA. It's a young brand, but it feels the identity is very strong. I mean, and I wonder, do, do you agree with that? It's so nice to hear you say that because we really feel that way too. I think like one of the things that we're really proud of is the fact that we kind of started as a Kickstarter and then have evolved into a brand that partners with brands and can be kind of a mouthpiece for these ideas that we all believe in. 
the idea that like the brands kind of look on brand, I think that's been a really lucky kind of self-selecting occurrence. It's happened that the brands that we've connected with, you know, are on the same page as us, quite literally. They're in the magazine, they're on the same page. And they really reflect kind of every aspect of a woman's life, right? Like it's, you know, some of them are to do with taking care of kids and some of them are to do with getting dressed and some of them are to do with giving birth and some of them are to do with all sorts of things. So it's not just one thing, which is, you know, the intention of the magazine to kind of look at a woman's whole life. You can definitely see that with the type of stories you cover. For example, one I mean, I really enjoyed because, to be honest, I had no idea she was going to be on the show. But the one about Jenna Lyons, that she's going to be the first, uh, I think, gay, uh, not competitor, but gay part of the Real Housewives of New York. I thought that that's amazing and a really fun story as well. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I mean, she's a true delight and has been for many years a pioneer mm. um, in so many ways, first in the fashion industry and shifting cultural norms there and having conversations that at that time weren't really being had. We had a story in this issue, like you said, um, Sarah Hoover interviewed her and it's a really fun meandering piece about women in the public eye and how in this time and age, we sort of all feel entitled to have opinion have many opinions about women's lives that play out on social media, on TV, and sort of unpacking that entitlement and really sort of examining why we feel that way and whether that's even remotely appropriate to take stock of how other people choose to live their life just because they happen to be in a public space. I was wondering, who is your audience? Because I know they're very engaged on social media. They love the printed copy. But I have a feeling it's not just mothers, right? Because, I mean, the type of stories like, you know, I'm not a mother, I don't have kids. I, I find it so interesting, actually. But do you know some of the stats of your audience, actually? Uh, the ones that actually buy the magazine or just consume it online? I mean, I think it's safe to say that, you know, the majority of our readership is still in the U.S., although the magazine is very much now global and sold everywhere. And, you know, I think we skew towards catering to mothers inevitably. But we also, you know, we do really sell a lot of magazines to women who are perhaps motherhood adjacent, as we like to say. It's younger women who are perhaps contemplating motherhood. And some of the feedback that we've gotten sort of in these past few years is that it's sort of intriguing to a younger generation to pick up a publication that portrays motherhood in a different way. We've sort of had these anecdotes about people feeling like a little bit relieved as if there was this sort of myth of motherhood that you became a mom and you fell off a cliff and then you were just mom, full stop. You know, and here's sort of a universe where you can exist as an incredibly complex and multifaceted woman, where motherhood is just one small segment of your overall identity. And for us, that's been sort of an unexpected gift to hear that kind of thing, because, of course, if that's something that we can reassure people about, that's, you know, a complete success from our perspective. Thank you, Melissa and Natalia. And the new issue of Mother Tongue is out now. now we all like a new title and this time it's called hard pack a new type of ski magazine that combines edgy reportage with cerebral writing to create a new lexicon for the sport that is weird philosophical 
and fun. It will be published biannually and distributed globally. I spoke to the founder, Zach Seeley. Hardpack is a ski magazine, or we like to say a new type of ski magazine. It is a magazine that is attempting to do something new within the industry. And I think, you know, I'm a big skier. I grew up skiing. I grew up in Utah. My dad put me on skis at the age of three. But I don't think I ever really related to ski culture. And I think ski culture can kind of fall into two categories. One maybe is on like an expensive sort of bourgeois, you know, maybe Davos or Aspen lifestyle. And I just never really related to that. And then I think the other sort of side is maybe your mountain town, ski bum sort of mentality. And that's fine. Both of those sort of things are great, but I wasn't sort of seeing in ski media a uh, new sort of representation, maybe that had like a fashion lens or maybe that had like a literary lens. At the end of the day, I think those two sorts of forms of ski media and ski culture have sort of dictated the way the sport is viewed. And I wanted to provide a new lens with hard pack. One of the things that we like to say is that we're attempting to create a new lexicon for the sport. And that's going to require new types of people seeing it, capturing it, filmmakers and writers. And it might require us to sort of dip into people that maybe have never skied before to write about it. Or it might require people that love the sport but have never shot it before and sort of seeing what they would come back with. It's called Heart Pack because, I mean, there's a very famous magazine that is no longer around called Powder. And Powder is this sort of like snow that, you know, you want to sort of seek you want to go ski. I love powder. But the reality is, is I spend most of my time skiing, like, you know, hard snow, ice conditions. I live on the East Coast now. I grew up on the West Coast, but I live in I live in New York City now. And it just sort of made me think about if we sort of privilege this single type of skiing, like skiing soft, fluffy snow, what are we foreclosing with the sport? So hard pack is supposed to be a provocation around new, new ways of thinking about the sport. I love that. And especially because of the weather conditions. I mean, it's changing all the time. So I think it's it's harder and harder to achieve that perfect snow, right? That people say, I mean, powder. So I think the name is super creative. Yeah, and this year was really strange with the weather. You know, we had planned photo shoots in the Alps and this winter the Alps really struggled with snow. So one of our stories, there's no snow in it. But that's, that's, just, just that's a story in itself, right? <laughs> yeah, that's just the reality of what happened. And then in the United States, there was a lot of snow this year, uh, but we didn't have any photo shoots planned over there. So it's just kind of the nature of some of these upcoming weather patterns. And give us a little preview of the type of stories that you want to cover at Hardpack. For example, one story that caught my eye in the first issue is about Georgia's only female mountain rescuer. I mean, incredible photography, something interesting that I didn't know. So tell us a bit more about the type of stories you want to cover in the magazine that perhaps might be different from traditional ski media. Yeah, that story uh, came to us because of the photographer Alex Webb, who is a fantastic photographer. He's a mountain climber, but he does a lot of work in apparel, shoots his commercial work for, you know, different apparel brands. And He's like, you know, I've been spending time in the country of Georgia, which has like a really interesting ski scene. You know, they have really tall mountains in the Caucasus Mountains. And he's like, I've been friendly with, at the time, who was the only female mountain rescuer, whose name is Nada. She's now not the only one. And Alex, you know, we sent Alex there to document it. And I think 
he had never documented like a ski story before. So what I liked about it is it felt more like travel-esque. You got a lot of really, really good photos of the townspeople, the culture there. And he also came back to us with like a poetic sort of written text that described his sort of journey that felt really impressionistic. So he's also sort of involved like in that story, like his person, his subject is involved in that. So I think relying on these people that you don't typically work with, I think you're going to help find those different types of skiers. Maybe they're non-professional, maybe they're like, you know, people who have not been covered by a ski media before that's going to require reaching out to people like Alex Webb, the photographer to help us locate those people. But yeah, that story I think came out really well and is one of our three covers. How often uh, will Hardpack be out? And I want to know more about, also about the business side of things. I mean, are you selling it through your website? What are your stockists, for example, as well? Yeah, so we plan to be biannual. And, you know, we're not like a traditional sort of magazine. So our schedule is going to be dictated on the stories we have. So mm -hmm. we're going to remain pretty flexible, but the goal is to do it biannually. So the next issue is slated for November at the start of the ski season in the Northern Hemisphere. We sell copies online globally. So you can go to our website at hardpackmagazine.com. But we're really, really, really into supporting boutique magazine stockists, like under the cover in Lisbon, you know, shops in London, Switzerland, Oslo, and then here in New York, we work with like McNally Jackson. So we want to make sure that we're associated with those shops who do really, really great work at promoting boutique independent magazines. I think in the future, you know, we would love to be, you know, in some really nice hotels near ski chalets, nice architecture, et cetera. But that's where we're at right now. And one thing about Hardpack that I liked as well, I'm glad that there was there, there's photo shoots as some interesting fashion because I am not a skier myself. I tried once in Bariloche, not very good, but I liked the imagery. I mean, I, I would quite fancy myself to wear some of the clothes featured here. Yeah. So the team, so I really have to give a lot of credit here to the creative directors on the team. So Brendan Dunn and Ken Tokunaga, and they run an agency called Soon Services that I think they do some of the best sort of like fashion work in the industry. We had been noticing that there had been a sort of convergence for the last few years around performance wear and fashion. And we saw it sort of as an opportunity to document this in some way or be creative about it. So doing traditional sort of fashion editorial shoots, but with ski wear, right? So there's a lot of really, really great brands out there. And you're able to sort of mix like high and low, whether you're pulling from Louis Vuitton or the North Face. And, you know, we wanted to do a shoot that kind of featured that collision course. So there'll be a lot more fashion coming down the line. And like I said, we have a fashion director. And I think that's going to be a way for people to relate to the sport in a new way. I think for people that maybe have skied some, you skied at Bariloche once, you know, you might like look like, oh, I don't feel like I like relate to this or I don't really relate to that sport. I think one thing that we can do to make it more accessible and relatable is provide different like lenses on the sport. And fashion is going to be one of those. Thank you very much, Zach. And the first issue of Hard Pack is out now. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks, as ever, to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. We'll be back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, please subscribe to The Stack on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. 
Street Player, Shades of Winter. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It's goodbye from me.